I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Okay, so we were kind of just having a conversation about what made us want to do this series. It was actually your idea, Madigan. Yeah, I listened to um, the first episode of Ashley Flowers' new podcast. I think it's called like very presidential or something like that. And she's getting into talking about like some problematic past presidents. And I listened to the first episode and I really liked it. But at the same time, I was like, Keegan and I would have way more to say about well, these things. Well, here's the thing. I've always stood on the side of all politicians are problematic. Exactly. I mean, and all presidents particularly, because the only way to achieve that kind of status in American politics is to have done some shady shit and to have made some compromises that maybe aren't so great. And the only person who I can think of who I'm like, no, that's a sweet baby angel is um, Jimmy Carter. Like, he's the only one who I'm like, okay, maybe he's all right. It's pretty funny because there's been all these lists lately with the election coming up of like who the worst presidents and who the best presidents were of all time. Well, Jimmy Carter was not a good president, but it's because he was a good person. Right. That's why. But it's funny because like, so my boyfriend Max is related to uh, Ulysses S. Grant. It's like a great, Mm -hmm. great uncle or something like that. And he's been getting a lot of like praise lately. I mean, he wasn't like great, but he's been he's been moving up the list because everybody else is moving further you down the list. You know what's funny is like I almost thought about doing Ulysses S. Grant because Ulysses S. Grant is a really interesting one as far as American history goes because yeah. he did some really incredible progressive things for like African Americans. However, his stance on like Native Americans was yeah 
not good. Oh, so, yeah. Presidents have blind sides. You know what I mean? They'll like yeah, pick they one cause, you know, mm-hmm. and then they'll yeah, for leave sure. everything else out. For sure. I'm super excited to know who you're going to talk about. Well, okay. So I'm going first today. So let's just jump right in. I feel like we got into this really fast, probably because we're doing two episodes tonight. And that's what happens when we're like, chop, chop, cut the small talk. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Exactly. I went when you told me we were going to do this. I'm like, you know what? Let's just start at the worst of the worst. I was like, let's just do the worst. Like, I understand that maybe defeats some of the purpose of doing this because you want to pick presidents who you think are great and then you examine some of their policies and you're like, oh, their policies were bad. Oh, I don't know. I think it's great that you're starting with the word. Are you starting with Trump? Oh, okay. So, all right. Not (laughs) not Trump, but previously still pretty bad. I am going to talk to you today about Andrew Jackson. Oh, my gosh. Well, Trump's favorite person. Uh, exactly. Oh, my gosh. I actually wrote in my notes at one point. I'm sure I'll get there in my in my seven pages of notes. Um, I'm sure I'll get there where I say that a lot of what he is doing is very Trumpian or his personality does seem to be very Trumpian. But I took a picture and I will send it to you. Uh, I do all my notes in Google Docs and usually in my header, I will put like if I'm talking about Eleanor Roosevelt, it will say Eleanor Roosevelt or like whatever. This in my header says Andrew Jackson sucks. <laughs> and my first sentence in my notes is let's talk about the seventh president of the United States, shithead Andrew Johnson. Andrew Jackson. <laughs> shithead Andrew uh, Jackson. Should we just refer to him as shithead the whole episode? I mean, he's real shitty. Okay, so <clears throat> when you brought this up to me and you were like, this is something that I want to do. One of the first things that I thought of, I thought about Reagan because there's a lot of hero worship around Reagan, but we had talked in depth uh, about kind of the Reagan administration when we talked about the AIDS crisis. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I didn't want to rehash a bunch of things that our listeners have already heard. So the second thing that I thought of was Andrew Jackson because there's also a lot of really weird hero worship around Andrew Jackson on both sides, oh, yeah. which is very strange. Like on both sides, like really? there are people on the progressive side who will say that he was very progressive for his time, which I wholeheartedly disagree with after yeah. having well because done I know there reading. were more progressive people before him. A hundred percent. In in fact, immediately before him. Yeah. John Quincy Adams was a much more progressive president. Right. Uh, and that is the president before Andrew Jackson. So let's get into talking about him. Now I will say that most of this information came from a Vox.com article. Because, again, like I was saying, a lot of the information on the internet about Andrew Jackson, while they will mention the Trail of Tears, of course, because you have to, they have a tendency to kind of whitewash or make look better a lot of the things that he did, uh, both before he was president and during his two terms. So a lot of the information that I will be telling you today comes directly from this Vox.com article, but I did also get some things from Wikipedia and a few other sources. So we will dive right in. Let's do it. So people have been trying to get Andrew Jackson off of our money for a long time now. So for people who are not American and maybe are not familiar, Andrew Jackson is on our $20 bill, which I would argue is one of the most 
used bills oh yeah that we have well yeah because if you're going to an atm and you're going to get your bills it comes out in 20s you're going to get 20 40 60 80 100 so there's lots of jacksons a lot of jacksons and um during obama's presidency it was decided that he would be replaced by a true american hero harriet tubman however in 2016 the treasury department announced under trump that while tubman would be on the 20 dollar bill in 2030 it was initially supposed to be much sooner than that but the trump administration pushed it to 2030 they intended to keep andrew jackson the only president in our history guilty of perpetuating a mass act of ethnic cleansing uh, on the other side of the bill. So they were going to have, this is the plan, actually, I think, as of right now. Really? Is to have Harriet Tubman on one side and Andrew Jackson, a slave owner, on the other side. Which I is shouldn't just- be laughing, but like Harriet Tubman is raising hell wherever she is oh, right now. She is turning over in her grave literally 6,000 times. Yeah. She's so pissed. It's such a slap in the face to her legacy to do that. So... And that's kind of like where this Vox article starts out. Like, they're like, look, this is why this is a fucking problem. Like, you should not be (laughs) accepting this. So let's talk about all of the shitty things that Andrew Jackson did in his lifetime. And it does become a little bit difficult to figure out where to begin. So I decided to begin with... The fact that he's on our money, I feel like because so many people, so many presidents get kind of thrown by the wayside and we forget who they are. Um, But we remember Andrew Jackson, not only for the Trail of Tears, but because he is on our money. And that is really ironic that he's on our bills because Andrew Jackson didn't believe in paper money. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He was the, the headline of this section of my notes is Jackson was basically that annoying libertarian dude at a house party. So we've all been to a house party where some guy is like, you know, there's no gold behind our currency and will like fucking corner you and talk to you about some like libertarian bullshit. So that was basically Andrew Jackson. You go to really fun house parties, Keegan. They're not fun. I haven't been to one in a long time. But I do remember when I was like 19, 20, like there's always that one guy who's like, I don't believe in big government. Yeah, exactly. And so like that guy at the house party, Andrew Jackson was opposed to big government in general and national banks. And he made it no secret that he wanted to dismantle the one that Alexander Hamilton set up, for example, the national bank. He believed in the gold standard and that the um, and this is a quote from historian and author. uh don't remember his first name, but his last name is Howe. All <laughs> He's right. a historian and author. And he said that the modern $20 Federal Reserve note should bear Andrew Jackson's portrait is richly ironic. Not only did the old hero disapprove of paper money, he deliberately destroyed the national banking system of his day. So he had basically a war on banks. He combined his intent on paying off the national debt with his dislike for banks, national banks, and it actually led to one of the worst depressions in American history. Oh my gosh. So 
once the government um, started running a, sur- a surplus, Jackson had nowhere to put the money without having a national bank because he had dismantled the second national bank, so not the one that Andrew, uh, that um, Alexander Hamilton set up, but a different one. So he divided it among the states. And Planet Money's Robert Robert Smith explained the state banks went a little crazy. They were printing massive amounts of money. The land bubble was out of control. And so before long, you had what was called the Panic of 1837, which was... So tell me if I'm hearing this right. Are they just like printing more money than they have? They're just like making money? I believe so. That's awesome. Can we do that again? I mean, it would be nice, but it didn't work. Oh. So he kind of like, I think, look, and I'm not um, I'm not an economist. I'm not a historian. But I believe that he kind of gave states the right to run their own shit because there was no national bank. Right. And so they were able to print their own money. And there was nothing to back that money up. So it ended up being a massive year's worth of recession that happened after that. So we have Andrew Jackson to thank for that. And I think that that's important to point out because I feel like whenever you criticize Andrew Jackson, a lot of people will come back and say, well, he did a lot of good things for our economy and that's why he's on our money. When in reality, did he? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, <laughs> in, re- in reality, he didn't believe in paper money to begin with. And he actually led to this massive recession, the likes of which we wouldn't see again until the 1920s when the um, Great Depression hit. So something to keep in mind. But I'm just getting started. Let me tell you guys, I'm warming you up with the least disturbing (laughs) bullshit about Andrew Jackson. Yeah. So... During the War of 1812, Jackson declared martial law in the city of New Orleans. He imposed strict curfews, censored the newspaper, and he defied a writ of habeas corpus, which is the legal privilege uh, recognized by the Constitution, which allows someone being detained to insist that a a judge look into the case. And When he did this, whenever he denied this um, writ of habeas corpus, he jailed a legislator who resisted calls to suspend it. So there was this legislator who came forth that was like, um, this is unconstitutional. You're not allowed to do this. And actually, at this time in New Orleans, like this was unheard of that he would take this kind of um, all in approach to governance. He didn't trust because, you know, in the during the War of 1812, he did not trust the loyalty of Creole people in Louisiana. Right. uh, And a lot of like mixed race people. So he enforced really, really stringent curfews uh, and things where he I mean, he declared martial law. It was like the government (laughs) or the military was able to control everything that happened in that area. And it was it was very unusual for the time. And so when a legislator stepped forward and basically was like, hey, this is unconstitutional, this isn't okay, he actually jailed that legislator and he stopped anybody from trying to assist that legislator uh, from being able to say anything that he did. And later on, 
He ended up being fined for having denied people their constitutional rights. But after his two terms as president, he fought Congress to have the fine refunded, which that's where I wrote, it feels very Trumpian to me. All of this feels very Trumpian because, you know, we think about all the people that, you know, Trump has like hired and fired and bad mouthed and, you know, turned people against them. And, you know, thinking about this legislator, and him being like, well, I don't like what you have to say. So instead of, you know, not mm-hmm. like Trump firing them, he's like, I'm just going to put you away. <laughs> you know? Right. Like the power. I mean, if anything should have shown us that this man should not have been president, it should have been this because it was very clear that the power went to his head and he was like, I have the ability to do whatever I want, regardless of whatever the Constitution says. And not only will I jail you, but I will punish anybody who comes to try and help you. Yep. And then after he was fined, this is so Trumpian to me. It's so much like our current president that he held a grudge about that fine he had to pay, which is literally nothing in the grand scheme of things he was president for two terms he had the money it's not like it's about his pride and his ego yeah he had to fight congress to have the fine refunded which it eventually was after his two terms what yes During this time, as a general, he also executed people for basically little to no reason. Um, Whether or not they were enemies or soldiers, it didn't really seem to matter to Andrew Jackson. He even killed his own men over petty infractions. What? During this time. Yes. So... uh, Uh, For instance, this is just one example, and there are many others. I didn't write them all down, but um, this is one example. When most people considered the war to be effectively over, so we're coming towards the end of the War of 1812. I think this is probably like 1815, around that time. Uh, But most people were like, okay, the war is essentially won. Two of his men tried to leave before their service was over, and they were executed on his orders in Mobile. Oh so my gosh. People in his own army, he was like, you're not doing exactly what I want, so I'm going to have you killed. killed. <laughs> Wild. Oh my gosh. I know. Okay, so there are those things, and those things are all very bad. They're very okay? bad. They're not good. They suck. It's amazing that he was able to get away with all of this shit and then go on to become president. Yeah. However, he was. So I didn't read his entire Wikipedia page because it is exhaustingly long. All the president's ones are too long. They're too long. I'm like, I literally don't care about like 90% of this. So I didn't read all of them. And so I'm going to jump right into the thing that I feel like, at least for most progressives, this is what Andrew Jackson is most known for. And that is the Trail of Tears. So what is the Trail of Tears? I feel like a lot of Americans know this, or maybe it's mostly because I was raised... um, I spent a lot of time in my youth living in Missouri, just hours from the border of Oklahoma. And so I know that like my brother and my mom and I, we went on a camping trip to Tahlequah 
uh, Oklahoma, which is kind of a central place for a lot of this history. So I went to a lot of the museums that talked about this sort of thing. But for people who don't know or don't have a deep understanding, I don't blame you because the Trail of Tears, even at my school in southwest Missouri, was maybe what? A page in a history book? Yeah. Like one single page? Yeah. And it really deserves a whole lot more of that, uh, more than that. So the Trail of Tears was a series of forced relocations of approximately 60,000 Native Americans in the United States from their ancestral homelands in the southeastern United States to areas to the west of the Mississippi River that were designated as, quote, Indian Territory. So they took them from areas like... Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, um, Florida, and marched them by foot from those areas all the way to mostly areas like Oklahoma. Oklahoma is known as Indian country. Even nowadays, it is very much a part of the culture in Oklahoma because of this. So the forced relocations were carried out by government authorities following the passage of the Indian Removal Act in 1830. The relocated peoples suffered from exposure, disease, and starvation while en route to their new designated reserve. The forced removals included members of Cherokee, Muscogee, which is also called Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations, as well as their African slaves and mixed race black people who lived among them. And if you remember from our Black Wall Street episode, that also explains how so many black people ended up in Tulsa and the adjoining regions yeah. in Oklahoma as well. So the phrase Trail of Tears originates from a description of the removal of many Native American tribes, including the Cherokee Nation relocation in 1838. Now, I do want to do a quick sidebar and mention the five civilized tribes here. So gross. I don't know why to me. Well, I do know why. I know exactly why. (laughs) There is a um, five tribes of Oklahoma or five civilized tribes um, museum. I think it's in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. I've been to that museum. And the way they talk about about these tribes looking back now is from such a colonialist standpoint and the fact that they even call them the five civilized tribes they call them civilized because they were forcibly removed from their homes in the south and they were stripped from their culture and they adopted christianity the english language and they began to intermarry with whites and they started you know dressing Uh, in more Western uh, European styles. So they were called the five civilized tribes. So gross. I just wanted to point that out. Very gross. And so it is these five tribes, which again is the Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, and Seminole tribes who were affected by this removal act. So I wanted to know um, what was the motivation for the removal of American Native Americans um, from the lands in the South. Now, I can't believe that I never stopped to ask why. Even after that one page in my history book, I never stopped to ask why Native Americans were forced to leave their lands and move hundreds of miles north. 
Well, I think the reason for that is exactly what you said, and that's clone. colonialization I can't talk tonight colonization god Mm -hmm. you know it's this idea that you know to be more like white is to be better so the way that it was taught to us in school was like we helped them we taught them we showed them a better way of life so yeah when you get to the trail of tears when you've been taught what the first Thanksgiving was you know, mm-hmm. the wrong story your whole life, of mm-hmm. course you're going to be like, well, yeah, they were right. helping them find a better place or they were helping, you know, there's all of these ways that right. we are taught history that's so skewed that it doesn't surprise me that we don't ask these questions, you know? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and it was never highlighted to me in a history book. And like I said, I went to the fucking museum and they didn't explain to me and I never questioned why they would forcibly remove these people. And again, I do think it goes back to something we've talked about on this show many times. And that is that we have this view of Americans as always being the good guys. And we just can't stomach it. Our education system can't stomach the idea that maybe there were motives that were not so pure for why we did these things. Right. Well, and our education system is also, you know, especially the one that we grew up on was written by a bunch of white people. You know, the, it's, absolutely. The stories we know are because of who told these stories. You absolutely. know, if it's being told in a way that was beneficial for the Native Americans, we're going to believe it, you know? Right. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, So this is directly a quote from that Vox article. It says, Jackson's support for Native American removal began at least a decade before his presidency. From 1815 to 1820, he served as a federal treaty commissioner dealing with Southern Indians and, quote, persuaded the tribes by fair means or foul to sell to the United States a major portion of their lands in the Southeast, including a fifth of Georgia, half of Mississippi, and most of the land area of Alabama. An anthropologist and historian, Anthony Wallace, writes in The Long Bitter Trail, Andrew Jackson and the Indians, quote, Andrew Jackson had a personal financial interest in some of the lands whose purchase he arranged. So by clearing the Cherokee from the American South, Jackson hoped to open up more land for cultivation by slave plantations. Jackson himself owned hundreds of slaves. Mm. So, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more, but essentially what happened here was they specifically ended up moving slaves out of the American Southeast because that was a valuable plantation land. Right. And white people wanted to get their hands on that land and they didn't want to have to deal with Native American people living Living on on that that land land. and being their ancestral land. Well, and also, Uh, like, they're probably already planting their own crops, doing their own thing. Like, it's probably prime territory for you know, the white folk to swoop in and just kind of pick up where they left off and take credit for all the work they'd done. Absolutely. And there's more to that, but I'm it's in my notes later on, so we'll get to it. But um, it wasn't all for personal gain. He also wanted to shore up his support in the South. So he knew that he was going to be working towards a presidency uh, and campaigning, and slave owners in the South wanted to get their hands on this land that was inhabited by Native Americans. So basically they had to go. 
So the Indian removal was Jackson's, and I'm calling it that, by the way, because that is what it's called. It's the Indian Removal Act. I don't call Native Americans Indians. Right. Because to me, that feels insulting. I would like to hear a Native American perspective on whether or not that's insulting, but it just makes me feel icky. So I don't use that word. If anytime I'm using that word, it's because it is what is in the literature that I'm reading. You got it. We got you, girl. Don't worry. So Indian removal was Jackson's top legislative priority upon taking office in 1829. Um, He quotes Jackson. So Wallace, uh, the writer, quotes Jackson's vice president and successor, Martin Van Buren, as declaring, quote, there was no measure in the whole course of Jackson's administration of which he was more exclusively the author than this, meaning the Indian Removal Act. So while the law... Um, Jackson pushed through Congress in 1830, uh, the Indian Removal Act, theoretically only authorized Jackson to negotiate removal with the tribes. Jackson just, he didn't see Native American people as human beings. So the Removal Act was supposed to only authorize him to negotiate with tribes. <laughs> Not to, to just try kick and, them out. Right, to try and come to terms um, to get them off the land. But he was basically like, I don't give a fuck. The American government and white people in general have authority and we can impose our will on these people. I don't care. Mm -hmm. So initially, there was actually a lot of opposition to the bill. Many opposed it on moral grounds. And somewhat surprisingly, evangelical Christians were loud opponents as well, albeit because they saw this betrayal of natives as an impediment on their missionary work. They were like, if you betray them, they won't trust us and we won't be able to get them to come to Jesus. So, okay. Yeah, that's basically why. But with all that being said, I mean, the proposal, even then, it was controversial enough. It was racist enough in the 1800s that the proposal only passed the House 102 to 97. So it was so close. Very close. Very, very close. Um, so five points away. You know, it's it's wild. So um, as soon as he had the go-ahead, though, he started work immediately. Though the wording of the bill made it sound like they were going to work with the tribes to come to compromises about the land, in reality, it was by all means necessary. So they sought to weaken tribes by denying their annuities, which was essentially they were giving tribes money every year, a certain amount every year. Um, They denied those from the tribe leaders, which then in turn um, weakened the authority of the tribe's leaders and help the tribes to sort of kind of start to turn against their own leaders. Uh, Southern state governments set about destroying tribal governments, banning tribal assemblies, making it illegal to pass tribal laws, denying Native Americans the right to vote or sue or testify in court or even dig gold on their own land. So this is the other part of it. So not only did they want their land for plantation land, but there was also gold discovered in Georgia in 1828 on Cherokee land. And this led to the Georgia gold rush. And when this happened, they were basically like, we're going to make laws that make it impossible for Native Americans to cash in on the gold on their own land. And then we're going to kick them off of their land so that we can take that gold. I have no words really fucked up. It's incredibly fucked up. So the Jackson administrations not only stood idly by and let it happen, but they 
almost condoned it, essentially, allowing Southerners to harass Native Americans um, and be- because it would be easier to coerce them into the removal treaties if they were to allow this to happen. So they just did. So the first post-act treaty, the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek on September 27th, 1830, secured Choctaw removal. Fun fact, I put this in, I put this in parentheses. Fun fact, my great-great-grandma was Choctaw. Really? So That's awesome. It's also the name of a skating move. Oh, really? You start on forward on one edge inside and then backwards on the outside edge. That is a Choctaw. Choctaw's... Choctaws um, intermarried a lot with uh, black people. So <laughs> that's how um, they came to be in my lineage. That's but really anyway. cool. Yeah. So uh, they secured the removal of Choctaws, I think, first. I think that was the first tribe that ended up being removed. And it was achieved, quote, against the wishes of the majority of the tribe by excluding the Indians' white counselors from the negotiations and bribing selected tribal leaders. So... They, there still wasn't a great understanding necessarily of English, of white colonialist pl- practices. And so they removed white counselors who would have helped Native Americans to understand what was happening. So they didn't fully have an understanding oh. of what was going on. Uh, and then they also bribed tri- tribal leaders to essentially like, give permission for their tribes to move right. off this land. Well, yeah, so and, they were, and they were being bribed, you know. Yeah. Very shady all the way around. So from the beginning of the removal process, it was deadly. About 4,000 Choctaws died of cholera, and hundreds died from hunger, exposure, and accidents. A steamboat carrying 611 creeks up the Mississippi collided with another boat, and it was cut in two. The boat was cut in two. How does that even happen? It must have hit them right in the center like a a two-bone collision. It's two boats. I don't know. Like, I don't know. It must have. They must not have been able to stop or turn away. I have no clue. Wouldn't you see them coming? Well, I don't know. I mean, because you always see movies where there's like deep fog or something. I guess. Like maybe they didn't see them in it until it was too late, like a Titanic situation. Okay. And they're like iceberg right ahead, and then you're like, it's too late. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But it killed um, 311 Native American passengers, mostly Creek, because they were coming up uh, the Mississippi carrying mostly Creek passengers. And again, that was only 611 Creek passengers. 311 of them died. More than half. Oh, my gosh. So anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of eastern Cherokees died either being rounded up or transported to the West. And Andrew Jackson just simply did not see Native American people as people at all. He acted cruelly in the interest of haste. And if any white officers attempted to carry out the removal in a humane manner or protect natives in any way, because there were people who were like, this is fucked up. Well, that's we my need to- that's my question. It's like, how the fuck are this many people dying? Like, that is extreme. Like, it's not just negligence. Mm-hmm. It's like violence. Like, there's something oh, it's else genocide. going on. Like, and that's the thing that I'm just like. How is this happening? It's genocide. Because when you don't see human beings as human beings, you don't care if people die. Because oh, you just see it as a necessary loss. Yeah. Because you're you're looking at them as an um, obstacle to your goal. And your goal is land and money. He sounds like and Hitler. And these people are in your way. Yeah, yeah. You know, he doesn't... Like, everything I've read about Andrew Jackson makes it 
abundantly clear to me that Native American people and African American people were not human beings to him. Right. Like he simply didn't see them as people. And to be honest, even with white people, <laughs> if they were in his way or if they were defying him in any way, it didn't matter if they died. Like even people on his side. Well, he right. He was just care. evil. He didn't value human human life like at all, like at all. Um, but so like I was saying, like there were white people who tried to intervene and maybe not intervene, but like officers who were kind of leading the trail of tears, which is already shady. It's like they're participating in something really shady, but they would try to protect the natives. Um, and they were at best not supported by the administration and at worst punished themselves because his goal was to get them to Oklahoma as quickly as possible. And regardless of the loss of life, it didn't matter. So um, the actual death toll of removal is uncertain. The toll for Cherokees alone is typically given as 4,000 to 8,000. And that is per Amy Sturgis's book, The Trail of Tears and Indian Removal. But thousands more Creek, Choctaw, Seminole, and other Native Americans died in the process. Uh, so the direct victims of the policy, they, and they were direct victims of this policy from Jackson's administration. And so we're talking, I mean, and we have 4,000 to 8,000, but honestly, it it's almost definitely higher than that. Yeah. Because they probably didn't log... Well, no, if they had no regard for human life, why would they have regard for the dead? You know what I mean? Why would they they know how it they had to know how it would make them look in the long run. So I'm sure they obscured those numbers as much as possible, which is still shocking because four thousand to eight thousand is still an astonishing number. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which means, you know, it had to have been probably ten thousand or so. Yeah. So not only did Jackson own hundreds of enslaved people, but he also, in 1935, worked with the Postmaster General to censor anti-slavery mailings from northern abolitionists. Uh, the historian Daniel Walker Howe writes that Jackson, quote, expressed his loathing for the abolitionists vehemently, both in public and in private. So he murdered thousands of Native Americans to create more land for plantations to torture black people for profit. So that is all I have on Andrew Jackson, but I really wanted to end with that because they talk about Andrew Jackson, the Trail of Tears, and this ethnic cleansing that happened, which of course is disgusting and one of the most uh, horrific things. It's it's truly like a war crime. It's one of the most horrific things that any president has done on U.S. soil. Um, so, I mean, it, it's worth talking about, but understanding his motivations behind why he did that in the first place, and that was to create more land, essentially, for black enslaved people to work on, makes it that much more despicable. Yeah. So, so yeah, what a piece of trash. Uh, all right. Well, my president that I'm going to speak of is a different kind of trash, and... He, well, I'm going to be talking about JFK. So JFK is John F. Kennedy. So for those of you who are not Americans and are not aware of the Kennedys, they're like American royalty. You know, now I guess the Kardashians are kind of American royalty, but like. Yeah, but this is different because it's a political dynasty. Yeah. And they literally call it Camelot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, they are, and I'm not going to get into a lot of his life uh, because I have two specific things that I really want to focus on, but it is important to know that, you know, he grew up in like a home that had like 12 rooms and a, a wraparound terrace oh, of course. and, you know, yeah. I mean, born with a silver people, spoon in his mouth, you know, as much as people want to talk about the Kennedys, meaning Bobby and John as being kind of Jack, actually, he never went by John. Well, <laughs> as as these as these champions of uh, you know civil rights and all kinds of other things. I mean, I would argue were, I would argue that Bobby is much more of a champion of civil rights than Jack Kennedy ever was. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like a lot of people hold John F. Kennedy as because of his some of his speeches that he made uh, and his relationship with some civil rights leaders. I feel like. I feel like people kind of put him in that category and fine. Like if people did good things, it's kind of the point of this is like you can do good things and still be shitty, shady things. Well, and the thing is, is that a lot of John F. Kennedy's life was just kind of set up for failure to begin with. And a lot of this is was relatively unknown until like the early 2000s. And I didn't even know any of this until a few weeks ago. So. John F. Kennedy was born an incredibly sickly child. Before even the age of three, he'd experienced whooping cough and an almost fateful illness of scarlet fever. For that, he was in the hospital for a month. Uh, Within his life, he was read his last rites four times. He did not die after any of those times. So he was incredibly sick his entire life. Within the first 10 years of his life, he had contracted bronchitis, chickenpox, ear infections, German measles, regular measles, and mumps. By the time he was 13, he had been hospitalized many times for stomach pains, and the doctors figured it was colitis, but he continued to have pain. So he went to this boarding school called Choate, and from the letters that I've seen and from the amount of times he's in the hospital, I've got to say, this kid was in the hospital more than he was in school his entire life. Um, he, no one knew what was wrong with him. He was going to all these different hospitals. He was going to the Mayo Clinic. He was getting all these tests done. And there's actually this really funny uh, line in one of his letters that he was writing to his friend back in Choate. Uh, he had a lot of like intestinal problems. That was his main Thing. And so they would stick things in his rectum. <laughs> and so he oh, would dear. complain about his asshole being red and painful. I think it's kind of funny that people used to share that shit in letters. Oh, yeah. Like, I would never write that no. like, well, in a letter to anyone. And my favorite thing that he wrote, he goes, I've got something wrong with my intestines. In other words, I shit blood. Oh God! Like your friend, I mean, Jack. I, I get it that like they didn't have texting and shit, and so like this was their way of communicating. But it's so wild to me that someone would get out like a pen and a nice piece of stationery and like use a stamp to send that to somebody that you're shitting you blood. Know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he also suffered excruciating back pain throughout his life, which is something that the American public was well aware of because that was something that he really couldn't hide. He would have to walk with crutches sometimes. He had a hard time leaning over. He wore a back brace. But that was kind of the only thing that they ever let the American public in on. But uh, along with those other things, he also suffered from osteoporosis, chronic UTIs, prostate problems, fatigue, weight loss, and 
Chronic diarrhea. Yes, our Funsies. president had a lot of diarrhea in his life. That's so funny because I feel like JFK, like we think of JFK as being kind of like sexy? a sexy president. Yeah, yeah. Like of of all the presidents, you know, he's the like hottest. Obama's sure. sexy, of course, but like outside of that, it's like yeah, you've got like JFK is a hot president. He's the hottest president, I swear. Like, it's just... I mean, I would argue that Obama I was just going to say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that. But but JFK is like, yeah. I mean, like, Marilyn Monroe fucked him. Yep. You're like, yeah, he's like a hot dude. Exactly. So in 1946, he was finally diagnosed with Addison's disease, which is an adrenal ailment, which means that his body doesn't produce enough hormones such as testosterone or a certain hormone that I didn't write down that helps you handle stress. So... I didn't go into the whole thing about Wait, Addison's. Wait, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. He d- he doesn't, he's not capable of, like, he doesn't have. He cannot handle stress. Is that stress. what you just said? Yes. That is that what I seems said. Like a, that seems like something that's vital for a president to have. Says is the entire point of this section. <laughs> he shouldn't have been president. So, um, <laughs> he. I would not want to be married to him either. I'm like, Jackie, oh, God bless. Oh, no. Because if you're From, married to at someone the end who of can't this episode, handle stress. At the end of this episode, you're going to feel so bad for Jackie. So well, yeah. He, like I said, he had had his last rites read to him multiple times. One time in particular, he had a UTI so bad that he went into a coma. Insane, right? So be- as someone who's had a UTI, no thanks. Oh, yeah. I used to have them all the time and I couldn't imagine having chronic UTIs. It would drive me crazy. So because of all of his ailments, he was loaded with a cocktail of drugs, including Lomatil, Metamucil, Paragoric, Phenobarbital, Testosterone, and Trensentine for his diarrhea, abdominal pain, and weight loss, Penicillin for UTIs and abscesses, Profane shots, and or sorry, Procaine, which they wrote Profane in my notes, and ultrasound treatments for his back. Uh, it's a long list, I'm sorry. Corticosteroids for his adrenal ailments, Codeine, Demerol, Methadone for pain, Ritalin I'm for sorry. his stimulant. <laughs> Hold on, gotta let me get he through. He was on... He was on all of these at once? I mean, throughout his life, yeah, different different combinations of them. Uh, Meprobromate and Libium for anxiety, barbiturates for sleep, thyroid hormone infection, uh, infections, injections of blood derivatives, and of course, he was on amphetamines. Oh, honey, no. Why? Yep. This is this is a 1950s cocktail if I've ever heard one. Like yes. this is a bunch of doctors who were like, I don't know, give him cocaine for it. Oh, That'll it's do it. Insane. So one of the main medications that he was taking throughout his life, probably starting in like 1937, were these corticosteroids. And they call them DOCA, which I was think it's like doca or daca or something um and they were these small tablets that were kind of about the size of a grain of rice that you would actually have to cut your skin and implant them under absolutely fucking and his friends would see him do this he'd take out a tiny knife he'd cut open his skin and he'd slide this little grain ma'am absolutely not yeah do you know how quickly i would not do i would not take my medication if i had to cut my skin open yeah no yeah it's not happening yeah i'll die so i'm not doing it (laughs) so these steroids really helped with his Addison's disease but unfortunately they would make other ailments so much worse and they can also lead to steroid psychosis 
So there's one thing here that, you know, he's been a heavy steroid user. Stop making hot, rich people president. Exactly. Like, just because they're hot and they're rich and they come from a a good family does not mean that they should run our country. Exactly. (laughs) So for the first six months of his presidency, Jack suffered from stomach, colon, and prostate problems, high fevers, dehydration, abscesses, sleeplessness, high cholesterol, along with his ongoing issues from his Addison's disease and his back pain. So not exactly the shape that we want the leader of our free world. So to cope with these, the drugs flowed steadily. And within the first few months of his presidency, Jack had brought another, quote, doctor to his team. This doctor was Max Jacobson, a.k.a. Don't like the way you said that. Yeah, I'm like, this doesn't feel like a real doctor. What's happening here? Dr. Feelgood. No, man. Dr. Feelgood. He's from Germany where he studied medicine and he collaborated with psychologist Carl Jung on mixing psychotic drugs and vitamins and enzymes to create these booster shots that would be essentially this cure-all. And it was made to target, you know, celebrities and wealthy people. It was essentially this IV shot that would give you this massive dose of amphetamines and you'd be ready to conquer the world. Other celebs that went to feel good were Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams. So writers apparently really liked this guy. Not surprising whatsoever. Yeah, writers who stay up. Writers of this time period. Yeah. Yeah, Like they were on all kinds of drugs. That's not surprising. But I mean, that's really scary because that still happens nowadays. I mean, yeah. A lot of people say the same thing about people like Prince and Michael Jackson and Heath Ledger that they had these doctors who just prescribed them whatever because when you are rich and powerful enough, you can do that. Well, and, and that's- that was this man's whole point of starting this business. Like he was going after like the rich and famous and the celebrity because he wanted to have a part of that life. And he created this very addictive substance that made people feel really good that made them keep coming back to him. And in fact, people would, were so obsessed with getting these like booster shots that he would teach his patients how to shoot themselves up so that they could do nope. it when he wasn't around. That's not smart. I've seen enough episodes of Intervention to know that that's a bad idea. That's a really bad idea. So when Jack first met Feelgood, who I'm just going to refer to as Feelgood, he was about to debate Nixon and he was feeling really exhausted from campaigning. And as you know, he's already had, he struggles from fatigue and weight loss and just has trouble getting through the day in general so campaigning uh, was not easy on his body at all so after getting his first injection Jack was skipping and jumping and like felt amazing and he kept feel good on can I ask you a question yeah do you know in your research why he pursued a career in politics? Was it pressure from his family? I do actually. Like, why? So it was actually his older brother Joe that first said that he wanted to be the first Catholic president of the United States. And Jack was like actually he was super clever. He was really into reading and he liked sports as well. He was very competitive. Um but it wasn't until his father started getting into politics and he I believe it was either when Kennedy was still in Choate or it was when he was in the Navy uh, when that happened. And I guess his father, you know, it piqued an interest in him. They shared that together and that's what made him want to go into I politics. I understand that. To me, though, it just seems like this person who is clearly not well yeah. and not really... I'm not cut out for politics and I'm a fairly healthy f- individual. You know what I mean? I can't imagine 
voluntarily putting yourself through this when you, I mean, I guess unless you feel like there is some kind of very strong pull to do good, but that doesn't really or sound a like very that's what got him. strong pull for power. Yeah, that's what it sounds you like. Because it doesn't sound like, because why else would you put yourself through this? Yeah. Like, agreed, agreed. I don't know his true motivations at all, but I know that when his father started getting into politics, like that was just something that they uh, bonded over and he got really into it as well. So I guess I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So feel good or under his code name, Mr. Dunn was very common, a very common face to be seen at the White House. Gate logs show that feel good visited the White House more than 60 times between 1961 and 1962. He would also travel with Jack whenever he had to make like a big speech or if he had to give a press conference, because since we know he doesn't have that hormone that helps him deal with stress, he would get extra shots of those hormones, he would get salt tablets for energy, and he would get these amphetamines. I don't know how you survive without having a hormone. I, I, as someone who has, like, chronic anxiety, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you survive without having well, something that helps you deal with stress. I mean, I think he still gets that hormone, but it's, like, it's a, it's a low amount Less. of it. So if he's in a stressful situation or a high-pressure situation, which he's the president, so it's going to be constantly. Which is, like, every day. Um, yeah. He needs extra help. And so that's why, you know, whatever he could get his hands on, that would help him get through the day. I mean, that seems fucking wild to me that you would. I mean, I feel like nowadays in the year 2020, the recommendation from anybody, like any mental health professional would be like, take a job that is low stress because it will be better for your mental health. Oh, exactly. Like, I can't imagine being the president of the United States with no capability internally to handle yeah. well, you know, stressful situations. His family was also very like obsessed with winning and they were very competitive, his father Clearly. especially. So mm-hmm. I think there was definitely just this thing about him where it's like, well, if I have to do it and I have to be the best at it. And he just spiraled down this drug hole. So one of the first major events in his presidency was visiting with Soviet leader Khrushchev regarding nuclear war. So Khrushchev is the Soviet leader. He sees Jack as this like young, naive, inexperienced, weak guy, which of course he is. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's exactly what he is. But Right. Don't get in your feelings about it. Yeah, it's the truth. Exactly. <laughs> but Kennedy can't appear that way, especially when he's going in to talk about the possibility of like nuclear war. So he has Dr. Feelgood come with him on this trip. And so when he thinks that Khrushchev is like on his way, he's about here, he calls Feelgood. He's like, get over here. I need like an extra dose today. This is going to be a long day. It's going to be a lot of talking. We're getting a lot of stuff done and he's going to grill me. I know it. I got to be prepared. And according to Dr. Feelgood's book, he's apparently like, you sure you want to do that, Jack? And Jack's like, yeah, I need it. So somehow I don't believe Dr. Feelgood either. I don't believe Dr. Feelgood either. So Mm -hmm. I feel like Dr. Feelgood was like, I'm there. How much are you paying me? Exactly. 100% I'll be there. So he gives him the extra dosage and it works. Jack feels great. But he unfortunately um, didn't quite have the timing down right to when Khrushchev was going to be meeting with him. So Khrushchev didn't even show up until hours later when the amphetamine started wearing off. And it was apparently incredibly obvious like he just looked lethargic all day and was really struggling to keep up and Khrushchev wiped the floor with him and he even admits it like 
Kennedy even says, like, he savaged me. Um, Listen, I'm going to be really honest with our listeners right now, particularly with the fact that I know that we have young listeners and I'm not condoning this behavior whatsoever. But I have absolutely taken recreational uppers before and I would not recommend doing it for anything that at any time when you feel like you need to be aware oh, like of like clear headed yeah yeah at all like if you have to do a debate or fucking you know what to be honest in my opinion i don't remember i don't recommend doing it at all yeah i think just fucking stay away from all of it yeah i it, don't do it anymore yeah it makes you stay up for way you. too long it's just not good <laughs> it's, it's not good for you it's really not good for you um it didn't make me feel good at all but i will say like especially yeah like if you have to be present mentally and clear-headed whatsoever don't like it's not gonna help you it's really not (laughs) well and he just fucked this up so this summit really didn't have any clear end goal but they were there to discuss nuclear weapons the possibility of nuclear war so on and so forth so at one point toward the end khrushchev said it was up to the u.s to decide whether there will be war or peace jack responded then mr chairman there will be a war it will be a cold winter Oh, for fuck's sake. Which is the opposite of what they wanted him to say. They wanted him to say the opposite. And he was like, well, then I guess we have a war. Can we look? This may, I feel like this is going to be the result of our presidential series that we are hoping to do on this station or not station, but on this. (laughs) On this this station. On this here station, the Yanth station, (laughs) Y-A-N-F. Um, no, but I really do feel like the result of this for me is going to be like, hey, maybe we should have like less privileged white dudes in charge. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> because you like th- when I was looking when I was researching the entire like history of what started World War One, that's basically what it was, was just like a bunch of rich white people being like, well, I'm upset. So we're going to go to war and a lot of people are going to die, but not my people. Yep. So it doesn't fucking matter. Exactly. Well, and it wasn't even, that's not even what he wanted to say. He just fucking said it. Like it was just so, it was so stupid. So luckily his brother Bobby had been paying attention to what was going on with Dr. Feelgood and he didn't trust, them. what are you laughing at? <laughs> Sorry, I'm like choking right now. But it just made me think like, God damn it. Can you imagine being Bobby? I know. You're like, you're having to watch your older brother and at all times be like, guess I better step in and fix That's this That's literally shit Bobby's life. Like, Bobby fixes everything. So he's like, I don't trust this feel-good fella. So he sends a sample to the FBI to get it checked out. It comes back that it's meth, essentially. So he goes to his brother and he's like, you can't do this. Like, you can't keep taking these injections. And Jack says, I don't care if it's horse piss. It's the only thing that works. Sir. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, eventually other physicians stepped in and they ended the friendship and the treatments of Dr. Feelgood. But apparently, like, they sent Feelgood back to New York. And this is all according to Feelgood's book. So I don't know. But, like, he goes back to New York. Jack, like, follows him there, makes him give him, like, a heavy dose. The Secret Service is with him. He, like, strips naked and starts, like, running around this, like, rose garden with Secret Service, like, chasing after him. Sir, you're the president. (laughs) Stop it. I know, I know. So, sadly, 
as I think most of us know or should know, John F. Kennedy was assassinated before his body could be completely derailed by drugs. But one of Jack's treatments could actually be a reason that he died. This is crazy. So Lee Harvey Oswald first hit Jack in the neck, which could still be fatal, but less so than the second shot to the head. Had Jack not been wearing his ever-present corset-like back brace, he would have gone down after the first shot and may have been saved. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? I had... Wow. Isn't that nuts? So... Well, I will say, look, this is all terrible. I'm not trying to say that this is not terrible, but somehow your story feels much more lighthearted than mine. Oh, it's going to get dark. This is the first... Okay. First part is like drugs and stupid president. I mean, it's not good. It's not good. But it's like, yeah, it's like, okay, you were on a fucking shit ton of uppers. Yeah. <laughs> like, did some dumb shit. You got naked and ran around a hotel exactly. room. Like, it's not It's not the biggest deal. Do we want him running our country? He probably shouldn't have been. 100% no. no. Yeah, no. But this part is a little bit more sketchy. So if there is one thing that all Americans know about Jack Kennedy is he's reliable with the ladies. <laughs> Oh, for fuck's sake. I had oh, to no. do it. You know what? Okay, listen, our young listeners, I'm going to need you to skip ahead. Because I've had a few drinks. I can tell. <laughs> I've had a few drinks because I'm trying to get all my drinks in because I'm not drinking until the end of my, my workout Honey, do you realize you're so close to the camera? <laughs> yeah, no, I moved back because I just noticed that. Okay. But like, so, but I want to say is like, I just... Do you think that JFK was like good at it when he was like, I'm like, you actually, I know that he probably wasn't because, yeah, because he, well, first of all, his body was a wreck. He can't move like he physically couldn't even tie his own shoelaces or reach across the desk for papers. How is he supposed to be a good lover? He can't be. Second of all. Most of his, like, affairs were not, like, romantic things. It was, like, just to get his needs met and that's it. So. Well, but I feel like a lot of people do that for, like, their affairs. I mean, it's shitty. Like, it's really fucked up. But, like, I feel like a lot of politicians especially, like, it's not about emotions. It's simply about physicality. Yeah. And so, like, I understand that. However, I'm just, like, if you're on that many drugs – And you're also the president of the United States, so you don't have very much time. I'm just like Marilyn. Yeah. Sweetheart, you could have done better. Well, actually, Marilyn apparently only ever slept with him maybe like one time at Bing Crosby's house. It was actually Bobby that had a longer affair with Marilyn Monroe. What? Right? Had no idea. John. Shocked. Yeah, it seems like Marilyn was really into Jack. And, like, written letters, and Jackie even, like, responded to some of them being, like, back the fuck off. Um, But, yeah, she was really, really into the president, because he's the president, but she was having a longer affair with Bobby, which is crazy. So... I like that relationship. I like that journey better for her. Right? I wish that it worked out. I mean, there's still also, like, the suspicious circumstances in which she died with the Kennedys, which is a whole other story of conspiracy theories, but... I, you know, I wrote a lot about all the different women that he had been with. Um, but, you know, there's only one story that I feel like is really important to tell. That is the story of Mimi Alford. So Mimi went to the same 
like high school or prep school or something as Jackie O. So she got this internship for the summer at the White House. She was 19. She had never had a boyfriend and she was a virgin just to put that headspace in the story. So on her fourth day of work, Dan Powers, who is the presidential aide, who is also the person who gets all the women for the president, uh, Powers approaches her and asks if she wants to go for a swim in the residence pool. And Mimi figured that I'm it was sorry. like, what? <laughs> what, honey? It's like that someone, like this is their, like imagine if that was your job. <laughs> it's like you've gone to college. Like you've gone to college. And, like, your job is to be, like, you have to be the personal liaison between the president and all of his mistresses. For real. For He was, like, the middleman for everything. It's insane. That's so, really messed up. Yeah. So he goes up to her and he's like, hey, you want to go swimming in the resident swimming pool? And she's like, sure. So she goes and she figures it's just going to be, like, a staff get together, which it was at first. And everybody's just swimming. And all of a sudden, the president shows up and is like, can I join? And she's like, oh, my gosh. Like, the president's here like he's gonna go swimming with us it's just so cool so the whole afternoon powers and jack kept the daiquiris flowing and apparently cheese puffs as well there were lots of cheese puffs there i read delicious delicious and as they were leaving the pool jack asked mimi if she would like to come to a cocktail hour later and he's the president so she thought again that the staff would probably be there So she met Jack later, and he asked if she wanted a tour, and she said yes, of course. Danger, bitch. You're in danger. So when they got to Jackie's bedroom, which apparently they had separate bedrooms, he took her virginity, and that's about as far as I'm going to say with that. So pause before you say anything, Keegan. Mimi herself does not describe this instance as rape. She does not describe any of her 18 months with the president as rape. How old was she? She's 19. I, however, beg okay. to differ. So I wanted to say that because I wanted to make it clear that the that the victim does not identify with that. I beg to differ strongly. She, of course, and she admitted it, of course I was going to go with the president. He's the president. He's the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he wanted her. And also, she's being raised in a time where women were expected to be compliant. She was in her place of work. If your boss is asking you to do something, you do it, and even if it's something inappropriate. Once, he even asked her to perform oral sex on powers, and she complied. He later asked her to do the same for his brother, Teddy, but that time she refused. So she just had to go along with anything that he wanted her to do. Well, yes. I mean, of course, the power dynamics of the time come into play here. But in addition to that, even nowadays, if you're talking about a 19-year-old and the president of the United States, I, I mean, he I was in his say, 40s, I think, at that time. Yeah. I mean, and I would say the same thing about all the people who criticize Monica Lewinsky. Yep. I mean, you're talking about a 23-year-old and the president of the United States. And they compared her to Monica Lewinsky a lot, which was shocking because she didn't even come out with this story until about 2003. It was actually uh, JFK's, one of his biographers that discovered some old like papers that was talking about Mimi and he's the one that kind of like opened this story and she felt like, you know, it wasn't his story to tell that, you know, she wanted to put her story in her own right. words. And I then mean, she wrote a book. I want to respect her 
narrative. Right. Uh, and that she doesn't believe that this was rape. And so I want to respect that for her. But I also do want to point out that there are power dynamics at play. Yep. That if even if she didn't say no, if she felt like she couldn't say no, which is what I'm getting yes. from this, is that like she very much felt like she could not say no then whether or not she or JFK were to identify that as rape, it's walking a very, very fine line. Because I mean, you feel like you're coerced. I think it is. I think it was, I think she was 100% raped by him. I Yeah, if, if, you're, if you feel like you're coerced, if you feel like you are doing something that you don't want to be doing, regardless of whether or not you have said no, if you feel like, the repercussions for saying no are so dire that you would not dare do so. Yeah. Then that, to me, yeah. 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 So this affair went on for 18 months. She even traveled with him when they could abandon Jackie at home. But Jesus, poor fucking Jackie. I know. And of course Jackie knew about this. She, she wasn't... Uh, she wasn't quiet about how she felt about her husband's she philandering. She stupid, yeah. Yeah, she once said, I don't think there are any men who are faithful to their wives. Men are such a combination of good and evil. She was once... Oh, honey, you, somebody hurt you. Oh, yeah, she's... That, that's the thing is, like, when you've been with bad men, you assume that that's just the way that all, all men, men are. are. Yeah. And like that's it's not that's not. True. Yeah. And he and like he would like leave parties with younger women in front of her and in front of like their guests and everything. And Jackie but, was beautiful. Oh, but she would get she would get back at him. There was one time that she introduced a staffer to a reporter as the girl who's sleeping with my husband. <laughs> So, I mean, look, I love that energy. I know. I'm like, it's kind of slut shamey, but at the same time, I'm kind of I mean, like, it's, it's shitty because the other woman is not your, your enemy. Right. I, you know what yeah. I mean? It's like the other woman is not your, en- your enemy. Your husband who took this pledge to you to be faithful to you, he is the one right. who should be criticized. I don't like the narrative that women are homewreckers or whatever, yeah. but at the same time, I'm like, if this is what you needed to feel like, you could get your power back. It's pretty funny. I'm not going to lie. Maybe line, that's unfeminist yeah. of me, but I think it's kind of funny. But I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like on the line about that because I'm just like, yeah, it's unfair to the woman she was talking to, but it's also like she was in a really shitty power yeah, situation. She really was. Um, but we do have to get back to Mimi. I could talk about Jackie O all day. Sorry. But, yeah, um, so while she was in this affair with the president, she met a guy named Tony and they got engaged and she didn't tell Tony about the affair with the president until after he was assassinated. And allegedly after that, Tony started to become very sexually violent with Mimi and they had a very unhappy marriage. He kind of like held that over her for a long time. They were married for quite a while, too, and apparently just never really mentioned it. But the instance where she told him apparently was quite a violent incident. Uh, the affair ended in... But fucking why? Like, that's such, like, masculine toxicity. Right. That, well, like, and I under... He felt she, inadequate. She was cheating on him. So I understand, you know, his frustration because, you know... Oh, okay. They were together. They were together. Okay, yeah. So she... Because right. she was going to school and then he would, like, fly her in on the weekends and stuff. Understood. Yeah. So she, like, was engaged and, like, dating this guy and then she was still having an affair with Jack. So that was kind of the whole whatever oh and I I totally skipped this part of my notes but it's something that I feel like shows very clearly what this relationship was like she could only refer to him as Mr. President and he never once kissed her during the 18 months that they had their affair 
I don't like any of that. I know. So it ended in August of 1963 while she was still interning at the White House. She says the last time she saw Jack was in November of 1963, where he gave her a $300 wedding present, told her to buy something fantastic to wear, then show me. I hate him. Yeah. I hate this. I hate this part of him. I don't like this at all. I know. This is really shitty. He reminds me of my ex a lot when I was reading this stuff. Just with the the pure ego and narcissism and ability to get away with anything mm -hmm. and know that he can say and do and inject anything You know, and it's not going to make a difference. I mean, he Mm -hmm. was a horrible husband. He was a great father, which, you know, kept them together. And he was a decent president. But honestly, I don't know if we would remember him as much if he didn't didn't have such a tragic ending. Right. I mean, and he did have kind of an instrumental hand in the civil rights movement. If he had been divorced from that and if he had not been assassinated the way he was and frankly, if he had not been as charismatic, good looking and young as he was, I think we would not have the same kinds of fond memories of JFK as we do. We definitely idolize him, which is why I thought it was really important to bring up some of this other stuff. So the next time you hear a conversation about him and somebody saying that he was so great, you can throw in his insane drug habits and uh, he's kind of a rapist. So, (laughs) I mean, I think what's important to note here, I mean, and I hate to say this about somebody who... Very likely, I mean, even if it was outside, even if you want to say that this Mimi, is that her name? yeah. Even if you want to say outside of Mimi, um, if you want to say like that wasn't rape, very likely a man like this has used his power to coerce uh, sex out of women before, which to me is rape. Um, Absolutely. So even if you want to discard like all of that stuff, like... It's just kind of a look into the idea that people are multifaceted and complicated. And just because they may have done one or two good things as a politician does not necessarily mean that they were good people or that they were without fault. Definitely, Um, He's absolutely, even if you still idolize him as a good person or a good president, you have to acknowledge that he had faults uh, and that he maybe did things that were really, really, really fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to find out more about other presidents, too. It's going to be great. (laughs) Okay. Um, If you have any presidents in particular that you want us to talk about, whether they be like obvious pieces of shit like Andrew Jackson or secret pieces of shit like JFK, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also get us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist and direct message us and follow us there. We have a Twitter that we sometimes use at yampfpodcast. Why? A. N. F. Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go ahead and rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is the number one thing that helps us so, so much. And you will be featured on Instagram for Reviews Day Tuesday if you do it. Last but not least, if you don't already, go ahead and listen to us on Radio Public. It's a free way for you to listen and it helps us just a little bit. 
All right. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage, to rage on. on. Bye. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.